I want to start off today with a little trivia about Mike Flavin's favorite fast food restaurant, In-N-Out Burger. If you've ever lived or traveled on the West Coast or in the South, you may have gone into an In-N-Out Burger. The San Diego location has been a mandatory stop on all the Mexico mission trips, and since he's brought them so much business, I think Mike has his own reserved parking space there. In-N-Out Burger is owned by Christians who decided that one way they could mix their faith with their business was to print Bible verses on their wrappers, cups, and bags. Kind of a quiet witness, hoping that people might take an interest and look up the passage and see what it says. The restaurant has a few favorite verses that they seem to repeat. The ones that they think, I guess, will best communicate the gospel. I bet you can guess some of them. Their top verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Good, predictable choice, right? Number two, Proverbs 3, verse 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. That's a great promise and, and really good advice. Third most used verse, Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Wow, another great invitation or promise from Jesus. And in fourth position, out of all the possible verses in the Bible, they use Nahum 1.7. Nahum 1.7. I mean, nobody knows Nahum 1.7 off the top of their heads. Am I right? The book of Nahum is buried in an obscure, often neglected part of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And even among the Minor Prophets, Nahum is kind of the poor cousin that is rarely read and frequently misunderstood. In our current message series, we're trying to unearth some of these buried treasures of Scripture. And Nahum is certainly one of those buried the deepest. I can honestly say I have never heard or given a message on the book of Nahum. Yet in 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul writes, All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, if that's true, that all Scripture is profitable for helping believers grow closer to Christ and become better equipped to serve Him, then this little prophecy of Nahum is no exception. Every portion of Scripture is indispensable. Each part of the Bible has its own contribution to make, even the minor prophets like Nahum, though they do require some extra heavy lifting and some pretty determined study in order to mine these diamonds contained within. Nahum is not an easy book to read or understand, and it's definitely not the place to start reading the Bible if you're new to the Christian faith. Remember, the Bible is more like a library than a novel. You don't have to start at the beginning and read it straight through. And In fact, that's the wrong way to read the Bible. You'll never make it through Leviticus, promise. If you're new to faith, start with one of the Gospels, maybe Matthew or John. Read about Jesus and his teachings, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's the best place to start. And then move into some Paul's letters like uh, Colossians or Ephesians that will ground you much better than trying to wade through the tougher passages of the Old Testament like Nahum. So what is this verse from Nahum 1-7 that makes it an In-N-Out Burger favorite? Well, here it is. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. 
The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. Great verse, good choice, way to go in and out burger. That's an inspiring verse that reveals the loving character of God, his, his promise of protection, comfort, and care. God is good. He is a refuge. He is a place of safety and protection. The Lord God cares about me, cares about you. Those are promises that I want to hold on to. I wish I could just stop my sermon right here. Say, amen, we'll all go home. Maybe that's what you're hoping for, too. But one of our values as a congregation is this, that we pursue a thoughtful faith. We pursue a thoughtful faith. In other words, we want to read and understand the Bible in a thoughtful way. We don't want to just kind of pick and choose the verses we like and then ignore the ones that we don't. We want to use the brains God gave us, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, to rightly handle the word of truth. And one of the things I've always tried to emphasize in my preaching and teaching is the importance of context. We can't just lift verses out of the Bible. We have to read and understand each Bible verse in the context of what comes before and what comes after. We have to consider the historical setting, what the author's intent might be, and what his readers could have understood him to mean. When people just kind of snip individual verses out of the Bible with no thought to the context, well, you can prove anything you want that way. That's why I always get nervous whenever I hear politicians or news commentators quoting the Bible, because more often than not, they're just using the Bible as a means to their end. They're not really understanding what the Bible actually says. They just do a Google search until they find something in the Bible that vaguely sounds like the point they're trying to make, and then they manipulate the Scripture to fit their own ends. So context is important. So if we have a thoughtful faith in reading Nahum 1.7, we have to recognize that verse 7 stops halfway through the sentence. You have to keep going. You have to kind of keep going and read the rest of it. And I don't think the people at the In-N-Out Burger folks, if they ever did that, because the second part is not something you'd normally put on a coffee mug or crochet on a pillow. Let me read the whole thing, Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. But with an overwhelming flood, He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue His foes into the realm of darkness. The rest of the sentence, in fact, the whole rest of the book of Nahum, is about God's anger. It's about God's wrath against the people of Nineveh. The first half of verse 7 is all comfy and cozy. But the rest of it, verse 8, and the rest of the book is a blistering, white-hot indictment of the people of Nineveh and how God is going to display His anger against them and just crush them into nothingness. In fact, it's about God's promise to literally wipe them off the face of the earth. Ouch! I mean, no wonder people don't like to read the whole thing. The idea of God's anger and God's wrath is not something people want to deal with. In fact, most churches would just want to not go there, would just kind of skip over Nahum because he doesn't fit into our current American cultural milieu of this non-judgmental everything. That's kind of the sea that we all swim in. But we're a church that pursues a thoughtful faith. And that means we have to be brave enough and strong enough to look at the tough parts of Scripture to see what God wants to teach us for our time though these ancient, I mean, through these ancient words. Ancient words, yes, but inspired by the same Holy Spirit who lives in us today. 
I think the way the In-N-Out Burger isolates the first half of this verse is sort of indicative of what has happened in the church uh, at large over my lifetime, especially the evangelical and mainline churches. We've tended to portray the gospel message, and the idea has been, let's just talk about the love and grace of God. Let's put all our focus on God's forgiveness and God's mercy, because talking about God's anger or God's wrath, that is a big turnoff for people today. We don't want to drive people away. No, we want to make it easier for people to access the message of Christ, be more seeker-friendly and all that. Old, Old Testament stuff about anger and wrath, it just gets in the way. Turns God into a really mean, kind of ugly ogre, a spiteful bully. And that doesn't fit our age of openness and total acceptance. It offends too many people. People don't like that judgmental thing. So let's just talk about grace in order to make the gospel attractive to people. That's really been kind of the growth strategy. Focus on the positive. And then people will flock to church. Of course, not to the extreme like someone like Joel Olstein does with his positive self-help kind of gospel. We're not going to go that far. But focus on the positive side of God's grace and then people will flock to church. Honestly, that has been the philosophy of many churches in my lifetime. Never mention the wrath of God ever. And so naturally, we love the verses about grace and forgiveness and we've tended to cross out the rest of the story so that more people will come to church. Well, how's that working out for the church in America? Is that a growth strategy that's actually working? Are more people activating their faith in Christ because of this tilt towards only preaching the positive? I mean, with 50 or 60 years of only talking about the grace of God, church attendance should be, you know, should be soaring, should be up and to the right, skyrocketing. If that's what it takes to reach people, then churches should be full to overflowing, right? If that's the right attractional strategy, then churches should be bursting at the seams and the influence of the gospel should be growing in our culture as more and more people respond to this message of God's grace. Unfortunately, just the opposite is true. Across the country, most churches are declining in attendance rapidly. And the startling fact is the more open and accepting and a denomination or a church is, the more non-judgmental its message the faster it is declining in participation and membership. Starting with the Unitarians, then the UCC, then the Episcopalians, and then the Lutherans, and then the Methodists, and then our old denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, it has been a ski slope of decline. The message of total acceptance of everybody for everything has actually had the opposite effect. Instead of growing, Instead of attracting new people, these denominations and churches are declining even faster. When the message is that God accepts everything and everyone, no questions asked, people quickly realize, well, hey, we don't need the church anymore. What's the point? If God is all chill, we're all accepted already, then there are better things to do on a Sunday morning. Who needs the church? So the statistics are very clear. The more progressive the message, the faster the church declines. And the more conservative denominations are right behind them, just declining a little slower. Even the rise of independent megachurches has not stemmed the tide. The megachurches are just bringing together more of the same under a larger roof, but the kingdom of God is not actually advancing. They have not been effective in expanding the influence of the gospel. Across the broad churches in the U.S., Uh, We're not being effective in actually making committed disciples of Jesus Christ. We're good at entertaining 
marginal believers who want a taste of spirituality in their lives, but in general, we're not making deep disciples. And I would say that includes us too. So maybe we need to take a closer look at uncomfortable passages like Nahum because there's something here that's profitable for you and me as we grow our faith. And maybe it's from these tougher passages that we actually get a deeper appreciation for the full character of God. You see, that was the job of the prophet, to reveal to the people in his day and to us the character of God. The prophets unfold for us the divine attributes, and each prophet sees God in a little different light, sort of like the, the facets of a diamond flashing in the sunlight. The attribute which the prophet Nahum was given to reveal was God's anger. And like I said, there is no doctrine quite as repugnant to people today as that of the anger of God. This is one doctrine which many would just like to forget. People are much more comfortable picturing God as kind of a kindly gentleman, a Santa Claus kind of figure, a merry twinkle in his eye who cannot bear the thought of punishing anyone or judging anyone. Nevertheless, it was Nahum's task to unfold the anger of God. And in his prophecy, God flashes in an awful fury. He is a God before whom humans must stand silent and trembling. You cannot read this prophecy without, without sensing something of the solemnity of this tremendous picture of God. So why and at whom is God so angry? Well, this prophecy is directed specifically against the city of Nineveh. Two weeks ago, Chris Voorhees preached on the prophet Jonah, who reluctantly preached of God's mercy in Nineveh, the capital city of Israel's worst enemy, the Assyrians. Much to Jonah's dismay, the city actually repented. Sackcloth and ashes, God's anger was withheld from the city. God spared it because from the king on down to the lowest citizen, they all turned to God, repented of their sins. But the book of Nahum comes roughly 100 years later, after Jonah. And during this time, the repentance wore off. A new generation emerged and went back to their old practices. You know, the church is always one generation from extinction. If the message is not passed down, the flame goes out. And that's what happened to them. They were doing the same things all over again that originally had, had roused the threat of judgment through the prophet Jonah. So Nahum preached in the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrian army. And now the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who came from Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, had his sights set on Jerusalem. Nahum's name means consolation or comfort, which as the Assyrian army was spread out around the city of Jerusalem, this prophet was given a message of consolation. You can imagine what it was like to see the ruthless armies of Assyria right out there with their terrible reputation, burning, destroying, killing everyone, including children, sparing no one. And here's Nahum the prophet standing up in Jerusalem and declaring that God is going to destroy Nineveh, the capital city of their enemies. Let me just read a portion of chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. The Lord is jealous and avenging. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea. Dries it up, he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. 
the world and all who live in it? Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. This is the picture that the prophet gives here of an infinitely patient God. As the prophet says, he is slow to anger. He does not move rapidly. He has given the city of Nineveh chance after chance to repent. He has sent prophet after prophet after prophet. They did believe one prophet, Jonah. But then they kind of repented of their repentance. You know, they went back to their old ways. And this is one of the most terrible things that anyone can do. Having turned away from their evil, sort of like an addict, they go back to what they had said they would forsake. And this is what evokes the judgment of God at last. God is angry. But this is no temper tantrum. There is nothing capricious about the anger of God. There is nothing selfish about it. It is a controlled but terrible rage, fearsome to behold. You can get some idea of the awfulness of this divine anger in the fact that all of the Hebrew words for wrath or anger are brought together in these six verses. They're all packed in there. The words are jealous, vengeance, wrath, anger, indignation, fierceness, and fury. All of them describe the anger of God. Jealousy, that burning zeal for a cause felt so deeply in the heart. This is not the selfish, petty jealousy we exhibit sometimes, but God's overwhelming concern for what he loves. His vengeance or retribution, his wrath, that towering anger, the blackness of it, the darkness of it, is described here. The word for anger is the word that literally means heavy breathing or or hot breathing. And the word for indignation means uh, foaming at the mouth. You can see how graphic these words are. The word fierceness in Hebrew literally means heat, and the word fury means burning. And all this to describe a God who is terrible in his wrath, moved at last to the point of pouring out his wrath upon that which has awakened it. God is a white-hot passion, burning with a terrible, blistering rage. The prophecies of Nahum do come true. Sennacherib is murdered by his two sons, and that ends the siege of Jerusalem. Later, Nineveh is conquered by the Babylonians in exactly the manner described throughout the book of Nahum. And then in about 331 B.C., Alexander the Great demolishes Nineveh brick by brick so that nothing remained. The city was totally lost for over 2,000 years until its ruins were discovered by archaeologists in the late 1800s. So what are we to do? with this description of the character of God. In Fleming Rutledge's book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, she acknowledges the difficulty that modern people have with the concept of God's wrath. But she writes, and I quote, there can be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. And she asks, don't we have wrath too? Isn't one of the slogans of our times, where's the outrage? Where is the outrage when we see so much corruption and greed and racism and violence? Don't we see outrage and accusations, you know, made against big pharma's marketing manipulation or, or CEO's astronomical wealth or a bad Apple police officer or violence described, uh, disguised as protest? Isn't there outrage in the Me Too movement? Shouldn't there be outrage when the gap between the rich and the poor has become so huge? Shouldn't we be outraged that gun violence continues to be a hallmark of American culture and so many innocent bystanders are killed? 
Don't we want our God to be angry about things like, like child abuse or, or hunger or human trafficking? Don't we want a sense of justice in the world? And you can't have justice unless there was someone who exercises a greater power against evil. Don't we want to know that Jesus is outraged at the evils of this world? Don't we want him to come and set things right? I mean, I wish he could come and flip over the tables of the greedy money changers as he did in the temple. I I want him to rightly judge people today. Just as he said to the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Matthew 23, 33. Yes, Jesus spoke of hell. In fact, he talked about it a lot. Jesus talked more about God's judgment than just about anybody else in the Bible, but we've tended to skip over those parables and passages because they make modern audiences uncomfortable. God's judgment is not just an Old Testament idea. I want to understand the anger of Jesus because I know he is the only one who can be trusted with that kind of power, trusted to use his anger in a righteous way. See, all of us are capable of being angry about something, but most of the time our anger is self-serving. Often our anger is misguided, out of proportion. Our anger is driven by our own needs and our own interests, and that's why we can't be trusted to judge others. We don't do it very well. Our anger cannot be trusted. God's anger, however, is pure. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God was having temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set things right. You see, I want there to be a sense of justice in the universe. I want God to be a God who judges because I also know he is a God who offers mercy. In this world, justice does not always triumph. So I want to know that God is the ultimate judge and people will be held accountable for their actions. The truth of Nahum is this. The only one we can trust to handle anger and wrath in a righteous way is the Lord because his anger is tempered by his mercy. Jesus, the only one who can rightly judge us, he's the very one who went to the cross to satisfy the wrath of God against sin and to make a way so people like you and me can receive mercy and forgiveness. God's anger and mercy, they meet with Jesus at the cross. Think of that great verse from Romans 8.34. Who is in a position to condemn us? No one for Christ has died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand interceding for us. Jesus is the only one we can trust to handle anger and wrath in a righteous way because he tempers it with astounding mercy. And that's an open offer from God to everyone who turns to him. Maybe In-N-Out Burger got it right with its choice of scriptures, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But let's keep reading. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, Nahum is a very uncomfortable book. It is not a book that people of our day would want to read because it reveals a side of you that we have tended to dismiss. But Lord, we know that you are a righteous and a holy and a powerful God. And your righteousness is combined with mercy and love. And we see it on the cross in all of your fullness and glory. 
through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, who is the one who will come again as a conquering king and who promises to set all things right, Lord. We thank you that you are a God of justice, but you are also a God of great mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you are good. Amen.